0: This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with a fast, easy, and completely online process. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at QuickenLoans.com/fool. Hello, everyone! Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You're listening to the Financials Edition filmed today on Thursday, September 15th, 2016, but you're listening to this on September 19th because I laugh in the face of production schedules. Um, Actually, it's because we're on a pre-taping binge because I'm leaving for Asia, Asia, and my topic for Monday was more evergreen, so you guys get to hear about Wells Fargo again! Again, my name is Gabby Lapera, and joining me on Skype is John Maxfield, the Motley Fool's top bank analyst. Hi, John. How's it going?
1: It's going well, Gabby. But you know what you did right there? You violated the rule that we set up earlier. Oh no! That you could not mention your vacation because it would cause too much envy.
0: I thought that. I thought that was limited to just China. I was hoping we oh, saying so in <laughs> Asia in general. Were you like a lawyer? <laughs> Sometimes my, my, my boyfriend thinks I am uh, <laughs> but I'm not. <laughs> um, so we are uh, I'm, I promise not to mention the forbidden topic anymore in front of you. Um, don't listen to any of the other podcasts from here on out until November. <laughs> um, so this this week is kind of a continuation of last week. obviously last week we spent a long time talking about Wells Fargo and the mess that they're in. Um, so, we thought that we'd kind of give you a little update on Wells Fargo, and then we thought that we'd answer a question that has been wandering around the boards, um, the Motley Fools discussion boards. And we've gotten like a couple emails from members about how to pick a good bank if you're a consumer. So, let's start with an update with what's going on with Wells Fargo today, um, or as of, I don't know, about an hour ago. So, they said that they're going to curb cross selling. In case you don't remember, uh, cross selling is Wells Fargo's practice of offering customers products every time they come into the store. So, um, say you go into deposit a check, they're like, oh, but do you need a home mortgage today? Or whatever it is they try and sell you. Um, so, they're, pro- they're dropping what they call product sales goals by January 1st. And they've told people to stop selling for the time being as well. Um, which is, this is a huge shift from what they used to be like, right, John? That's right. I mean, so one of the questions, you know, th- talk thinking about
1: Wells Fargo and, and all the issues that they're having right now, from an investor's perspective, the question is whether or not this changes the investment thesis on its stock. And, and for a while there, I mean, I, I guess this is all transpiring very quickly because it was just revealed. Last week, that it had defrauded all these customers from 2011 to 2015, and it paid a fine. But all 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 kind of the regulatory fines and the things that Wells Fargo has to do are pretty minimal in terms of you know when you consider this is a bank, right, that earns five and a half billion dollars a quarter. So it had a 185 million dollar fine. Well, that's just that's just a drop in the bucket compared to how much it earns. So the question was, well, you know, unless any other shoes dropped. Really, there, you know, it, this didn't really fundamentally alter the fact that Wells Fargo is still one of the most profitable banks in the country, right? And still one of the most efficient banks in the country. and still one of the best when it comes to managing credit risk, right? So the the, the, the thesis was still intact, but other sh- these other shoes have started to drop that are starting to erode that thesis. And and one of them is the fact that John Stump, the CEO, came out and said that they are suspending the cross sales of financial products. Now this goes to the absolute core. Of one of Wells Fargo's competencies, and that is the ability to get their retail customers to use more Wells Fargo financial products than most other banks can get their customers to use. And that boosts revenue, it boosts growth, it ties these customers in more tightly to Wells Fargo, making it harder for them to leave. So when you hear the CEO of Wells Fargo come out and say that, look, we're gonna dial back this cross selling, well, it has to do that in response to all the trouble it's in, it's, it's really starting to cut. You know, really directly into you know every, the you know an investors' thoughts um, towards Wells Fargo.
0: Yeah, and to give you guys reference, um, we're filming this on September fifteenth, and our initial show on Wells Fargo was on September twelfth, and this hadn't come out when we filmed in the morning. Um, so in the last three days. This has happened, and these other things have also happened. Um, federal prosecutors are investigating to see if they should file a case against them, and it's not just one. They filed. Uh, they've. Wells Fargo has received subpoenas um, from three different prosecutors' offices, which is a lot, <laughs> um, and a little bit worrisome for them.
1: Yeah, and the rumor is that what federal prosecutors are looking for, they haven't decided if they're going to file a case, uh, uh, evidently, and they also haven't decided if they do file a case, whether it's going to be civil or criminal. But the thing that they're looking at is whether or not high level executives at Wells Fargo knew that thousands of its employees were opening up up to 2 million unauthorized accounts. For Wells Fargo customers in order to boost cross sales, so it, these are really difficult uh, investigations because you have to prove what's in law we call scienter, which is that there was an intent on the on the, on behalf of executives at Wells Fargo to actually get behind this as opposed to it being a group of rogue employees, if you will. But the, it's a really important thing because. You know, if a, a number of additional lawsuits come out, it will further impact Wells Fargo's reputation. And if you're, I, I presumably, they're also going to have investor lawsuits against the executives. So you're going to have those. You could potentially have, you know, additional fines from the federal regulator for federal prosecutors. So, I mean, it's just, it's getting to be a much bigger issue than it originally looked like it was going to be.
0: And this actually leads nicely into my next point. Um, guess who said this quote? Are you ready, John? I'm ready. <laughs> Go for it. This was a staggering fraud. Come on, this went on for years and they didn't smell anything in the air about fake accounts, she said. There's a hint.
1: <laughs> it was that, Is that of Elizabeth Warren?
0: That is Elizabeth Warren, <laughs> who has demanded that Wells Fargo appear before the Senate's banking committee. Um, John Stumpf has agreed to testify. Uh, just in case you don't know anything about Elizabeth Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren, she... Um well there's no love loss between Big Banks and Senator Warren. <laughs> so this is going to be a really really interesting testimony. Um the House Oversight Committee has also started demanding documents. Um so I'm I'm I will tune into into to to that. Sorry. That was a lot of stuttering.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no that is going to be a really interesting thing thing to watch. Now before let me let me just kind of add kind of another uh, element to this because you know, last last week's show we really focused on you know Wells Fargo and the misdeeds and the malfeasance that went on there. But I, I think I, I think to be fair, I think we have to I think you have to step back also and appreciate all the good that Wells Fargo brings to the table. And, and let me give you some specific examples. So when when you're thinking about banks, I mean these are incredibly important. Institutions for economic growth, right? And they they keep our capital. They make it possible to get loans and to invest that capital, which pushes economic growth. I mean, these are incredibly important things. And when you look at the nation's biggest banks, Wells Fargo is the third largest bank. It is arguably the safest and the soundest of them. JPMorgan Chase probably comes in a close second. But that that's important because it holds Wells Fargo holds something like ten percent of our nation's deposits. So the fact that it is so good at credit risk and so responsible in terms of keeping its customers' money safe that needs to be recognized and appreciated to kind of offset some of this. I guess
0: that's fair. Like Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo is. From a federal perspective, a safe bank in terms of that it's not going to go belly up anytime soon, but it has to shake consumer confidence in the bank and potentially the bank's business if consumers start leaving that the bank was lying and doing these things. Uh, I,
1: I do not. Like, there's no excuse for what Wells Fargo did, but let me just add a little bit more context behind this. So, if you go back to the financial crisis, I mean, the federal government pumped. Tens of billions of dollars into Bank of America and Citigroup. It even did the same with J.P. Morgan Chase. When the federal government went to J.P. Morgan Chase and asked it to, in effect, rescue Bear Stearns, well, J.P. Morgan Chase wouldn't do that without a thirty, million, $30 billion dollar loan from the federal government that would cover any potential losses from Bear Stearns. Well, Wells Fargo, it didn't need a bailout. I mean, it it went into the crisis, it avoided the worst of the subprime mortgage mess, so it it wasn't in that same type of dire situation. And as a result of that, when Wachovia failed, or was on the verge of failing, Wells Fargo was able to step in by that bank without any government assistance. Incorporate it into its model. I mean, it, that that saved the United States taxpayer many, many billions of dollars. And keep in mind that before Wells Fargo stepped in to buy Wachovia, which at the time was actually bigger than Wells Fargo, it was a huge bank, right? Before it did that, well, Wachovia was going to be sold to Citigroup, oh, dear. of all banks. <laughs> okay, and it wasn't only going to be sold to Citigroup, but it was going to be sold to Citigroup, is my understanding. After it was acquired, after it was this FDIC, FDIC or the Federal Regulator stepped in uh, and, and, and took possession of it, so in that way, not only would uh, Citigroup get up for a, an extremely inexpensive price, but federal the federal government would then be on the hook to cover potential losses from Alcovia. So the point I'm trying to make is that look, there is no excuse for the sy- the systemic fraud that took place at Wells Fargo between 2011 and 2015. However, we have to keep in mind that this is an incredibly important cog that acts responsibly in a lot of other capacities with respect to the economy.
0: Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I, I Sometimes when stuff like this happens, I wonder if we're going to look back on it in 10 years and be like, oh, that was our Gulf of Tonkin, Ooh, which might be a controversial thing. Please don't write in about the Vietnam War. I- Frankly, don't want to hear it, listeners. I'm so sorry. Um, So, just to get back to some other stuff that's happening with with Wells Fargo after that brief um, interlude, Uh, the reason that one of the things that they're going to talk about in front of the Senate Banking Committee is um, Carrie Tolstead. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. So, she you might have heard is the head of the Community Banking Division Unit. Where all the fraudulent activity took place, Um, and she is retiring at the end of the year. And uh, I think on Monday they reported, or Tuesday they reported that she was going to get 124 million dollars in stocks and options when she retires, which is now valued at 85 million dollars because of the drop in the share price. Um, And John Stump seems to be totally cool with this, which is which is really interesting. And the Senate committee, the Senate Banking Committee, is asking. Like, why not clawbacks? Do you want to explain clawbacks real quick?
1: Yeah, sure. So, it's clawbacks. So, that would be if the bank were to come back in and take some of that, take some of that compensation back because of the fact that Tolstead was in charge of the community bank where the fraud happened during the years in which it did happen. And, and just, just to clarify one point about Tolstead. She is in July where her her retirement was announced. Now they said that didn't have anything to do with this, but like let's let's just be real. That's not a her retirement was not a coincidence, right? And she it was actually probably stepped, not a coincidence. Probably not a <laughs> right. I mean, like let's, let's just be real. Let's, <laughs> let's just be.
0: Let's be. You know, careful because I have already. Interacted with our company's lawyers, and they're very, very nice. A couple days ago, and I would like to avoid doing it again. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, not for anything really uh, bad, totally, mind no. you. I, was... I feel I feel pretty
1: comfortable saying that it wasn't a coincidence, I mean, because <laughs> Wells Fargo knew it was coming down the. I mean, this is a pretty, uh, you know, it's a pretty big deal. This is pretty standard operating procedure for how how companies work when these types of things happen, right? Same thing happened at J.P. Morgan Chase when they had the London Whale scandal. In 2000 and 2012. but the, here's, the, here's the thing about Carrie Tolsted that is that's so disappointing. It's not so much about Carrie Tolsted, it's more about the CEO, John Stump, the chairman of CEO of Wells Fargo. in her retirement in the, in the announcement that Wells Fargo published upon her retirement, announcing her retirement in July, John Stump, the chairman of CEO of Wells Fargo, said that she was quote a standard bearer of Wells Fargo's culture which leads you to wonder it was this type of behavior these aggressive sales tactics that pushed over that crossed the line into fraud is that a part of Wells Fargo's culture of course it's not but the choice of words certainly made it seem like that's what stump was saying
0: yeah it's it's not looking great sometimes i mean i haven't been watching the news as carefully today But based on what I've seen the last couple days, it it kind of feels a little bit like John Stump hasn't quite realized how much trouble is coming down the line. Like he's standing at the very base of a mountain and the avalanche has kind of started at the top, but he hasn't noticed the falling chunks of ice yet. You know what I mean? But
1: I I think you can look at it a number. Remember, if there's a federal prosecution investigation going on. Stump has got to be careful with his words because he doesn't want to be implicated in that. You know what I mean? But the problem is that, look, if he's, then he came out and basically in in an interview on CNBC and in an interview with the Wall Street Journal, he basically came out and laid this at the feet of Wells Fargo's branch employees who probably get paid whatever it is, you know, $12 an hour. So you think like, here's John Stump, a guy who makes $20 million a year in, in, in and around there, blaming a systemic fraud. That took that captured five percent of the bank's branch-based employees. He's blaming that on people who basically make no money, while at the same time going out and saying that this that Carrie Tolsted, who is in charge of that unit, who's going to get upwards of hundred million dollars when she leaves the bank as a result of accumulated stock options, that she was a standard bearer of the culture. You just look at this and you think like, wow, like who is John? Who is advising John Stump to throw the little guy under the bus? And to protect the bid guy, it's just—it just—it just encapsulates encapsulate everything that the United States, it, 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 all of the problems that we've been having with banks in the United States over the past few decades.
0: Yeah, the whole thing makes me feel anxious, yet weirdly energized, <laughs> um, which is probably good for this show. Uh, so that's your kind of brief update on what's going on with Wells Fargo, so I want to turn to the second half of the show. But before we move on, let's take a quick minute for our sponsor. Mortgages are hard. We know that because we evaluate banks all the time on this show. They're super hard. Luckily, Rocket Mortgage has taken all the complicated, time-consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of the equation. Everything is completely online and, with a touch of a button, you can share your financial statements, helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. Quicken Loans is an equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states. nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Thanks again to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans for supporting our podcast. I want to turn to the second half of the show where we talk about um, how to find a good bank from a consumer's perspective and not an investor's perspective. Most of the time, the show focuses on how to find a really good bank to invest in, um, to buy stock in. But like I said, we've been getting a lot of questions asking, how do I find a bank that is good for me as a consumer? And I want to start out this piece with us with me saying that neither John nor I are going to. Um, advocate for one bank over another like and if we accidentally do that we really aren't saying like you need to run out and get a bank account at that bank. Um, but just kind of general advice for what to look for like what what benefits consumers that doesn't necessarily benefit investors. Um, so do you want to kick it off with the investors perspective, John? what do you think?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So th- th- the thing to note here is that there is an inherent tension. Between what an investor looks for in a really good bank and what a consumer looks for in a really big bank. Now, there are some, there is some overlap, but a lot of there most of it is, is, is looks is more of a conflict. So let's let's think about that, right? So if you're a bank investor, what do you wanna see? You wanna see a bank. That's right, well diversified so that they don't just earn money from their asset portfolio, they also earn fee income. Well, if you look at this fee income, where does the fee income come from? Right? It comes from account fees, overdraft fees, insufficient funds fees, things like that, right? Those are, you know, not consumer friendly things. So while diversification is good for investors, it's not good for the consumer. Talk about transparency. Right, you want to know what financial products you're getting, what they do, all those uh, you know, all those different things. You want to you want to understand what you're buying. Well, banks don't have an interest in making those things clear because if you don't exactly know what you're getting or the fees associated with accounts, it's a lot easier for a bank to ply you for additional fees if you, you don't know what's happening. Are so right, right.
0: and th- there's federal regulations surrounding this now, especially around mortgages. Right, um, I don't if you happen to get a mortgage pre-financial crisis and another mortgage post-financial crisis you'll probably have noticed that you get handed a paper where it makes it very clear what the terms of the mortgage are and that was something that was federally mandated post-financial crisis because they felt that like a, they felt that a lot of consumers didn't know what they were getting into with their mortgages especially in terms of the interest rates Yeah, I mean that's exactly.
1: I mean you could think about it in the context. It's it's kind of. I know a lot of people don't like Obamacare, but it's the same principle that Obamacare was going for with exchanges. If you put all this information in a simple format where you can compare all the different companies that are offering these products, that will make those products more competitive. Which that means it will that will lower the price for consumers. But if you if you go against that transparency, you're going to get wider margins. Right. Right. So that's good for your investor. Bad for your consumer,
0: right? So the and I want to point out that this this clarification of what's going on with the mortgages that wasn't the banks just saying like you know what we should do. No, this was the federal government saying no, you have to do this um, because the banks, like I said, they're interested in keeping their investors happy, and keeping themselves running and making more money.
1: <laughs> That's right. I mean, when banks talk about this, they talk about how banking mortgages have been commoditized. Which that's kind of a they there's a they mean that that's a negative thing. But from the consumer's perspective, a commoditized mortgage is a good thing because that means the bank isn't earning a lot of profit
0: out of that. Yeah, um, another thing uh, that's good for investors and good for banks' profitability is cross-selling products. Not as great for consumers um the obvious example being that Wells Fargo being pushed into creating fraudulent accounts but it's also not great for consumers for another reason which is that um sometimes consumers if they're not very well educated end up with accounts that they don't need which can end up causing them to have to pay a lot in fees
1: yeah and you're just like harassed right yeah. anytime you interact with your bank like do you want to buy i mean when wells fargo customers i mean like when you read kind of like the the, you know the, their experiences with Wells Fargo that have come out in the media. I mean, they all talk about how you couldn't go into a bank without being cross-sold additional product. And I'm like, when you're just going in to cash a check, you just want to cash a check. You know what I mean? You don't want to sign up for a point you made earlier, a mortgage at the same time.
0: Yeah. Um, and then the third thing that investors uh, appreciate about banks is that um, some banks make it pretty hard to switch. Which means that you're way less likely to move your money out of the bank, and that means that they're going to have your money to make loans with or do whatever it is they're doing with your money. Um, Good for investors, bad for consumers because if switching costs are high, the 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 rates are a lot less competitive between banks.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, and and this and it's good that the the switching costs came right after cross selling because those two are intimately intertwined because. But if you go to, let's say, Bank of America, right, and, and you have a brokerage account, an IRA, maybe a checking account, a savings account, a credit card with them, maybe you get your mortgage with them and your car loan. Let's say you get those seven different products with them, and then like they do something to maybe they some backhanded thing where they charge you too much for something or that you that wasn't approved. What are you gonna do? I mean, how long would that take to switch all those accounts? And 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 then you add the complexity that let's say you have your money, your your paycheck. Every couple of weeks is directly deposited into your account. And then let's say you automatically pay things out of your account. So you'd have to detach those things. So those switching costs just make it really hard for you to vote with your feet, if you will, if you're being mistreated by a particular bank. And then even on top of that, though, here's the here's the great irony though with the switching costs, Gabby, is that let's say you do want to switch like Wells Fargo, but you still need a big bank because you know we were talking before the show, you travel a lot and do stuff like that. So you want branches all over a large ATM network. Well, like, who are you gonna go to? Like, what? Like, Bank of America with like the things that they've done over the past couple of decades, or J.P. Morgan Chase or Citigroup? It's like they're all kind of in the same boat in this regard.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, I'm struggling really hard not to tell you about my my personal life and all my personal banking stories, but uh, let's move on to things that consumers should look for when they open a bank account: um, low fees. You should find out what all the fees are on everything before you open anything.
1: <laughs> yeah, like annual whatever it is. Annual fees, overdraft fees, insufficient fund fees. That if you're a consumer, that's where the bank is making money on you. So if you can if you can attack the fees from the consumer's perspective, that's gonna get you, you know, three quarters of the way along to where you wanna be in terms of picking a good bank.
0: Um, this seems kind of obvious, but maybe people haven't thought about this. FDIC insured. Your bank should be FDIC insured. If it's not FDIC insured, you're probably not at a bank. You have given your money to a charlatan. Um, (laughs) See if you can get it back ASAP. Yeah. You should avoid, (laughs)
1: you should run. Stop listening right
0: now and go to change banks. (laughs) Um, Savings accounts, uh, or really any accounts um, that are not credit cards or something like that, or mortgages, anywhere where you're. Parking your money, um, you want to look for for accounts that give that have high interest rates, so you get a lot more return on it. Um, I think most big banks average an interest rate of like .1 ish .15 ish percent on savings accounts, I believe, Um, which is pretty gosh darn low, um, especially when you realize that there are other there are other alternatives which we'll discuss shortly like internet banks or credit unions that do have higher <laughs> uh do have higher interest rates um <laughs> sorry uh i feel like what was I, that i feel like <laughs> i've been one? transported I... back to my classroom in the university of nebraska and i'm looking at a student going do you want to share with the class <laughs> i was definitely one of those one of those tAs <laughs> yeah um Another thing that you want to look for is good customer support. That can make a huge difference.
1: Yeah, that, that's right. And, and in that customer support, not only you know, there's a number of different ways you can kind of measure that. Like if you call to their their call center, like how quickly do they answer their calls? Right? How how, how friendly are the people that that help you? Do they actually help? Or do they, they just actually
0: like- solve your issue? This is huge. <laughs> and I guess there's no way to really know that until you have an issue. But uh
1: <laughs> you can always go out and, and, and look at, you know, there are companies, JD Power and Associates, that go out and do customer scores of banks. And, and, and so you can get a sense for it on that. Or you can go to Yelp, right? Read reviews about banks and stuff like that. So there are places where you can get data that, that shine a light on this. But to your point, I mean, like, y- you don't really know for sure what that's going to look like until you're there and you have to confront a problem.
0: Yeah. Um, the other thing that is. Uh... That you have to think about when you are picking a bank, just in general, um, is that you need to pick a bank that has services that make sense for you. And John, you kind of touched on this earlier when you talked about, like, say you travel a lot and you want access to a really wide ATM network. Um, you just, you just want to pick a bank that has services that you can actually use. It's a, you make an
1: important point because if you think about it, like for me, you know, I'm an investor. I have you know, an IRA account for myself for my wife. I have a brokerage account. Uh, We have checking and savings account. We have savings accounts for our kids' education. um, So long as they're they're good by the time they go to college, or else I'll just take it and spend it on a vacation. Um, But you know. For me, it's really convenient, and for people like me, it's really convenient to have be able to have all of those products and services in one place. And then, so someone like you, you, you're you're going to I'm going to mention it. This isn't against the rules. You're going to Asia here pretty soon, right? I mean, <laughs> you want a bank where you know you can have you can get those access to those services wherever and whenever you need them.
0: Yeah. Um. So you might be sitting there thinking, like, I don't know if big banks are for me or. Are there any other options? Um, sorry to sound a little bit like an infomercial, but I guess it's kind of the nature of this, this episode. Um, there are a few different options besides just like your, your big banks. Um, the two that come to mind are internet banks and credit unions. And Of course, big banks, credit unions, internet banks, they all have their pros and cons, so we're just going to kind of go over them um, for you so you can think about what's best for you. Um, let's start with internet banks. Um, internet banks actually have, talk, talking about what we were talking about earlier, have the best interest rates on savings accounts. And that's typically because they don't actually have to sink any cost into opening physical branches. So, all that money they save, they can give back to you. And when I say they give you the best interest rates, I mean typically 1% or higher on your savings accounts, which is much higher than 0.15%. <laughs> um, the other nice things about the internet banks is that they're open 24 7. You know, that's good. Yeah,
1: yeah. And 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 let's and let's be honest. Like, basically, a lot of banks are going in this direction. You know what I mean? That's
0: true. Um, cons of internet banks. Sometimes not having a physical location can be a hassle because every once in a while you actually have to go into a bank's branch to like present identification or do whatever it is you're trying to do, get a cashier's check or something like that. Um, and a con is, I guess, if you don't trust the internet, then the internet bank is not for you. <laughs> Um, That's an actual concern. I'm sorry to giggle. Um, I have some older relatives, uh, especially, who do not trust a bank that they cannot touch, which is fine. If it's not for you, it's not for you. Um, So, Potentially, another option for you might be a credit union. Um, Credit unions are really interesting. We touched on earlier, we said that investors and um, consumers Tend to be at odds. They tend to butt heads when it comes to the direction that the bank should take. Credit unions solve that problem because anyone who is a member of the credit union who has a savings account there is technically a shareholder of the credit union. You know, they're not publicly traded entities. They're all privately held by the people who actually have money in the credit union, which gets rid of a lot of those um, those troubling interactions. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, there just isn't that conflict of interest, right? Because, like, why would you, as a credit union, why would you, for lack of a better term, why would you screw yourself, right? You know what I mean? Like, why, you know, whereas a bank, the shareholders take, you know, there's an advantage to take an advantage, you know, because they're owners and they make more money if they take advantage of the consumers. Well, if the consumer owns a bank, then it, it, it just takes away that conflict entirely.
0: Yeah. Um, Some other pros of credit unions are, um, you tend to get much more favorable rates on loans. Um, You often have ATM fees waived, because since credit unions aren't very large networks, um, they don't have a lot of ATMs, so sometimes they'll pay for that for you, which is nice. That means you can use any ATM wherever. Um, That's not true of all credit unions, though. so that's something that you definitely need to check. Um, What else? I know that we talked about a bunch.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, you just get you just get the impression when you talk to people who bank at credit unions that it's just a much more pleasant and personal experience. Yes. You know.
0: Oh, I did remember another one. Um, their savings accounts also tend to carry higher interest rates than big banks. Not as big as internet banks, but higher than you'd get at a big bank. Um, so that being said, there are some cons to credit unions, right? Uh, like I said, potential ATM fees. Without a lot of ATMs around. Although I was thinking about this the other day, I don't remember the last time I paid in cash for anything, so I don't know that that would be a huge deal. Yeah,
1: I mean, and ATMs, like, they may not even be around for that much longer if you think about it, you know what I mean? To your point, I mean, like, not a lot of people use use cash, and the other thing to keep in mind, and we were talking about this before the show, is that like, okay, let's say even worst case scenario that like you do need to use ATM all the time or, or not infrequently, right? And, and mm-hmm. let's say you're going to incur some additional fees as a result if, if you're a credit union customer as opposed to let's say if you're a Wells Fargo or Bank of America customer where they have ATMs all over the country. Well, I mean, it's not like there's just a cost. There's also you know that offsetting benefit, right? right? because of the more pleasant experience. And the other thing to keep in mind is that like because of the other advantages that well that 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 credit unions provide, when you factor in even additional like ATM fees, it still may be a more economical relationship between you and a credit union than it would be between you and a big bank, even if the big bank waived those ATM fees.
0: Yes. Let me hit you with my second potential con, which is that Uh, credit union credit cards are a lot less likely to have rewards attached to them. So, if you are a power user of those rewards, this might not be the best relationship for you. On the other hand, you can always open a credit card with whatever bank you want and not have to have your savings or your mortgage or whatever with that bank. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize this, but most credit cards are not I mean, Visa doesn't actually own your credit card. Your credit card comes from, say, Bank of America or uh, J.P. Morgan Chase or Wells Fargo, and Visa just administers the transaction. So, whenever you open a credit card uh, up with, with a bank, you're actually opening a bank account. Um, so, you can still benefit from that and have most of your business be done with your credit union. I, for example, have um, credit card accounts open with two different banks. Um, yeah,
1: we're we're the, we're, the, we're the same way. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, it just depends. Like, I I have a credit card open with a bank, um, because it has really good travel rewards. And as I mentioned earlier, I travel a lot, but I won't say to where because I don't want to hurt your feelings, John. <laughs> <laughs> so, last con, um, for credit unions is that there is. Potential limits on your eligibility. Um, You know, some credit unions are only for federal employees or, you know, only for people who live in a certain area. So it might be difficult to join. Um, The bright side is once you join a credit union, they're not going to kick you out. Um, At least I've never heard of that happening. Um, So, yeah, you know, results may vary (laughs) by credit union, (laughs) um, just like they might vary by bank. Oh, the other thing, the other potential con of credit unions is credit unions don't have as much money as big banks, which means that they are not they're a little bit they tend to be a little bit behind the times in terms of mobile and online banking, which can make your banking experience a little bit more difficult. I don't remember the last time I walked into a physical branch. Um, you know, so if if you're a really like heavy power user of your online bank banking platform, like that's something you definitely want to check to see if a credit union has that or not before you join. Um, regular banks, I think we've pretty thoroughly discussed the cons of regular banks during this show. Um, they are convenient both technologically and geographically. So if that is something that's important to you, then um, by all means continue on or join a big bank. Um, and like I said, they're, they're really good if you move around a lot. Uh, and they have a lot of products all in one place. so that's that's also really nice. Uh, I, I think that credit unions and internet bank, I'm not sure about the internet banks, but they vary in the the types of products that they do offer. So you know, um, while John and I can't say for sure what type of what type of account you should open with what type of institution, Make sure you have all the information before you go into it, Um, and just just be careful with your money, which um, I know sounds like a really silly thing to say. Uh, Who isn't careful with their money? But it turns out a lot of people. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I guess I guess kind of the the overarching message is, you know, just yeah, be vigilant. The banks they say they're there for you. But there is evidence to suggest that they are not looking out for your best interests. So you need to do that That's in true. that relationship. What
0: would that tagline look like for a giant corporate bank? We're not here for you, we're here to make money. <laughs>
1: <Exactly>. <laughs> I mean at least they tell the
0: truth. <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably I'd probably put my money in that bank. I'm like, Oh okay, yeah. well <laughs> probably not nice gonna thought. lie to me on my terms. <laughs> um Okay, well, um, I think that's it for today's show. I'm sorry, I know we ran a little bit long, but I wanted to make sure that we tried to present an even view of all the all the different things and we needed to talk about the Wells Fargo updates. Uh, so, thank you very much for joining us, John. Thank you for having me. And to our listeners. As usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Contact us at industryfocus@fool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus. Thank you to Austin Morgan, who has done two of my podcasts today! You are awesome! Uh, and thank you to y'all for joining us. Everyone, have a great week!